Hello, hello, hello. Good morning, good night, good afternoon, wherever you are in the world. Welcome back to Diceberg Children of Indenture with me, Alex Bacchus. I use they, them pronouns. You're listening to episode 9C, the third and final part of our Indenture Writers Roundtable series. In this episode, we're continuing our conversation with several of our indenture writers on literature and the various indenture descendant identities they hold. It has been really special bringing different people on two different continents together for this conversation. However, there have also been some challenges with getting five different people together at the same time. And regrettably, not everyone is fully available for the entire two hours of our recording session for this episode, though it has been an honor and pleasure having everyone in this space together in this chat, sharing knowledge, sharing their literature, their artistry and their craft, and it's been really warming for the soul. Here in episode 9c, we continue with our post-reading discussion with Three of our writers, Kamala Maquerel, who uses they-them pronouns in English, and Yel en Francais, Krima Rahman, who uses she-her pronouns, and Sila Arjusimitu, who uses she-her pronouns as well. Don't forget to follow our guests on Instagram. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram as well, at Diaspork Children of Indenture, and on all of our streaming services. You can follow us there, Spotify, Anchor.fm, Google Podcast, Apple Podcast, and turn on notifications to make sure you're the first to know about the new episodes being released. You can also check out the web page of the Digital Humanities site with the link found in the bio of our Instagram page. Again, that's at Dysburg Children of Indenture. Let's get back into our conversation with Gamma, Sila, and Karima. I hope you enjoy it. And thanks for being a part of this journey. I would like to pose a question to you and if you have any other questions for one another, um, please uh, feel free to ask them. But the question that I have is, what does language and writing mean to you? And do you see those as, I mean, those are different things. And how do they relate to your identity, to your brownness, and perhaps also your blackness or other identities you hold? And does writing act as a tool in reconciling, understanding, or informing on your identity in any way? In sort of trying to make sense or comprehend what is this reality? What is what is what are all these complex tools uh, or com- I'm sorry, complex situations and experiences that we carry in life? But thank you, everyone, for sharing this space. Thank you so much for your time, Kama. This was really beautiful. Thank you. Um, I mean, I would say that for me, language, yeah, uh, I, I, I love working with language, into language, through language, because I think language is world making, right? Like as human beings, independent of the cultures that we come from, the one thing that we have in common is that we tell stories, right? Like we tell stories about others, about the world, we tell stories about ourselves. So there's always we tell, there's always an element of storytelling that helps us mix make sense of the world we're living in and the relationships we share with ourselves and with each other. And I think, uh, you know, to be able to articulate that, it's fundamentally articulated with language and through language. 
uh, and I think it's important to pay attention to language because also language holds power, right? Like language allows certain things to be said and certain things not to be said. And for me, what I'm interested in really in my relationship to language as, as a writer, as a poet, but also as a multidisciplinary artist who still always brings poetry and brings language into my multiple art forms is exactly this. It's, it's that understanding of the power dynamics that are implicated in language and what is it that can be undone, that can be redone, that can be relearned, what is it that can be twisted, um, and how I, I, I think that that kind of play with language and bringing uh, that sort of power dynamics to light through, through poetry or any other writing practice uh, has the potential of being world changing, because if, if language is world creating, then uh, challenging or shifting or destabilizing or deconstructing uh, or celebrating uh, language in multiple ways can give can be one of the ways in which we we reframe our relationships in the world. Thank you so much, Kama. That was really well put. Karima or uh, Sila, do any of you have a preference of, of responding to that as well? Okay, thank you. Um, so this is quite a loaded question. I guess I'll start off by saying that um, when I think of language as a Muslim Indo-Caribbean, I heavily associate mainly Trinidadian, Guyanese, Urdu, and Arabic with my upbringing specifically um, as well as my culture. So Trinidadian Guyanese are languages in their own right I'm deeply connected to and that I've heard through my parents, my grandparents, um, and Urdu as being this deep connection to not only my Muslim Indo-Caribbean identity, but also to my ancestors who were displaced colonially as uh, indentured laborers, as well as Arabic as being a language that I feel deeply connected to when I'm in prayer and in sacred spaces, um, when I'm performing the maz or when I'm in the masjid or whenever I find that I'm in a difficult situation, uttering words in Arabic, such as um, just thinking of Allah allows me to feel connection. So these are kind of the the, the roots of what I'm thinking of when I think of language and my connection to it. So language and writing means so much to my identity, brownness, and other identities I hold and is definitely a tool of reconciling and understanding or informing my identity. So language and writing is basically this medium of communication with me, my ancestors, and future generations. It becomes a way of immortalizing the journey of unpacking trauma lived experiences as well as hope, strength, and being unapologetic. So language and writing is a way for me to explore who I am, my lived experiences, and to share my journey of self-identification when looking at identity. Language and writing is my expression of decolonization, reclaiming multiple intersectional identities and a form of colonial resistance for me. My parents may speak what is colonially known as English and the language they were colonized with, but it's full of intergenerational resistance with ranges of peppered sweet sing-song Trinian Guyanese accents rooted in indigenous African, South Asian, and European languages. Trinian Guyanese accents my parents and family spoke were grounded in intergenerational oral history and memories of Trinidad, Guyana, the land of my ancestors, present-day South Asia, especially India, 
such as in the words used in Bojpuri, Awadhi, and Urdu. An example of how language was passed down over generations in my Indo-Caribbean identity is in what terms we used to refer to family members. Growing up, I called my mother's parents Nana and Nani, and uncles and aunts on my mom's side as Chacha and Chachi. And growing up, my father would always refer to me uh, lovingly uh, as Bacha, which means child, for example. So this connection to language and identity is explored in my writing, whether it be spoken word, short stories, or articles. And writing a language has been very healing and a medium I use to decolonize mental health with tools from my own community and my ancestral knowledge as a way of moving away from Eurocentric and white ideas of how to heal and how mental health is understood. I want to use what was passed down for me because the, the knowledge for my community is so powerful. And one of the mediums that I do this with is I learned to sing in Urdu from uh, my mother, who won casita singing competitions in Trinidad, and who comes from a musical family where many members sing casitas. And these are Islamic songs of page that are rooted in colonial resistance and a form of knowledge production in my Muslim indentured ancestors. And I think the sound of casitas, sung at Quran Shari's small lute functions, and the sound of Quranic recitations, my father sang his Nia, for example. Um, the intention when performing namaz and prayer in Urdu, these are examples of how Urdu is used. The recitation of the Tazim, Ya Nabi Salam Alaika, Ya Rasul Salam Alaika, Ya Habib Salam Alaika. So home is basically thinking of these things. A language is thinking of how these casitas are a method of colonial resistance, ancestral remembrance, knowledge production, oral history, continuation of Islamic traditions, connection with Allah, and being able to deeply connect with my Muslim Indo-Caribbean identity as a form of healing and wellness through an Islamic lens. So language is, is so deeply connected to this. And not only is it deeply connected to the pain of rejection, or being Muslim Indo-Caribbean in so many different spaces, but it's also a way to heal and to find strength and to decolonize uh, from mental health. And not only my indentured um, diasporic ancestry, my Indo-Caribbean ancestry, but also from my Muslim ancestry and through an Islamic lens. So there's just a lot to unpack when we're looking at writing and language, but that's just a little snippet, snippet of it. Thank you so much, Karima. How about you, Sila? Um, yeah, I think I think I love language, and at the same time, it's also um, it's also used in a very dense way to either amplify power structures or or not to amplify them. I think um, my father, if he would still be alive, he would be ninety seven uh, this year. And um, so he didn't speak any Dutch, um, which is, of course, the native, <clears throat> colonial native tongue of, of Suriname. Uh, but he never learned uh, to speak Dutch, which was um, interesting because he never went to school. And the languages that he knew were um, Berninger, which is a mixed language Creole. And... Um, and Tsunami Hindi, uh, which is now called Tsunami, but uh, was also called at one point Hindustani, uh, and dragged away from a little more, I think, uh, from Bhojpuri, because my grandfather was, was from Bhojpuri in India. Um, so the words that he used were also not common words for, um, for a lot of 
uh, people that had more layered backgrounds uh, towards the colonial background uh, and the diasporic history. So I think, therefore, you know, our family situation, we used to talk like Hindustani, Sanami Hindustani a lot because my father didn't speak Dutch. So um, I feel very much at home and connected when I hear people speaking Sanami Hindi or Hindustani in that sense, um, because I feel like I'm home and I feel like I'm with my parents who are no longer here. But also I feel a little disconnect in the sense that I have two sons, they are 14 and 16. And um, so I understand Hindi, I can write in Hindi, I can speak somewhat in Hindi and um, of course English is one of the learned languages but also Frisian language is a learned language which is a very primary language and also Dutch of course which I can express myself best in because that's also how our educational system was uh, in the Netherlands so but when I'm looking from my own personal background then I feel like I didn't do my best to actually perceive like or preserve our language um, towards the next generation which are my children and uh, of course my husband is um, is uh, half black west african and half indonesian also through colonial rooting in suriname um, and the diaspora community there uh, and so we have a very mixed type of family and then getting everyone's languages and cultural background and religious background in the mix uh, takes up a lot of time and effort, which of course it's lovely if you have it and you can spend it on that. But uh, you know, in real life, sometimes it gets dense so much, and that's also with the the language bit. Because I love to watch movies with my children or listen to music that is so close to my heart that really moves me. And then because they don't understand it, they kind of miss the essence of what I'm feeling and sometimes it's a little bit um, I feel like uh, some sort of loss in that that I cannot share um, these meaningful texts and also like my father was a singer he played a lot of different types of uh, instruments uh, like harmonium and pintal and dhul and, and my mother sang with him and I have so many uh, memories linked to um, all of these words and songs and narratives uh, that were passed on to me, but now I cannot really pass them on to my children because, you know, they don't understand enough of the language to feel the emotional part about the, you know, losing your um, connection to the home country or uh, figuring out in what way you can still feel connected. I mean, we used to have cassettes, you know, cassettes in a different yeah, time and age. Um, where my father was, uh, was sending messages on cassettes to my mother when he was moving to the Netherlands with request songs. Um, so my mother knew that he was thinking about him, right? And they don't understand the whole concept of what it is to be apart from your loved ones, to start all over in different country. And it's all related to through language. So yeah, for me, that's very, um, very emotional part of, of not being able to transfer that. Yeah. Thank you so much, Sila.
both of you, everyone has has there's so much like power and uh, that I just feel through through all the words that you've shared today. Um, and, and there's 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 so much to unpack. There's so much truth. Um, but, but thank you all for for your time. Do you have any questions for each other? Regrettably, um, some of our other guests have had to go off uh, with the various responsibilities uh, throughout the day. And I also realize, you know, we've been at this a little bit of a while now, but I and want to honor your time as well. But do you have any any questions for each other? Um, I don't have a question, but I just wanted to um, say a quick comment. A lot of what was said just now, I just wanted to say it really resonated with me with thinking about how there's a loss of language and how language um, is used and misused or preserved or not preserved within the context of displacement. So one thing that's really um, interesting is also looking at how when we look at the Sinhalese concepts, a context of how Sinhalese is spoken, and then looking at it within the context of Trinidad and Guyana, where there's a lower degree of language retention, um, I definitely do feel that loss of language, and I I feel that loss of language um, across multiple spaces. So it's not just the first displacement, but then it's also the second migration uh, to now what's commonly known as Canada, and then also looking at the way that language is violently opposed on you as well, not only to uh, our ancestors who were indentured laborers to the various locations they were displaced to, but also looking at how violently French is also imposed colonially on those who grew up in what is colonially known as Quebec or Jojage. So it's also interesting to look at how language is also not only you feel um, traumatized and you experience uh, intergenerational trauma and pain in these different ways, but also the way that the little bit that we retain, we could feel so much joy and hope and connection to. And that's just a really interesting um, way that we experience language. And it could be the same language, but different words could have a different effect. And also looking at how even the steward in our community um, I'm referring to for Tukuli, um, how that's used and not used by different communities, how that draws pain and also could form connection for others. There's a lot of complexity to language. So it, I just really appreciate that the comments that you made earlier. And it, it really, I'm sure it would resonate with a lot of people as well as it did with me. Thank you. I think, I think for us, uh, so I think it's so interesting because I'm so not used to using Indo-Caribbean. So it's not a part of my regular vocabulary, but it's nice to know that there's such a large community thinking about the same kind of effects that the colonial history or the double colonial history sometimes has on our daily practice and how we experience our identity towards also using, of course, my primary, primary language is Dutch. And that is also um of course a part of our colonial history so and that's also with english we're using language of the colonizer i think that's why i feel so deeply about using tsunami or you know using uh hindi or you know like all of these uh, languages that are from our uh, ancestors or even from my parents uh, that that feel so close, but then also become so far, right? Uh, looking at uh, preserving. And I think you gave a 
very good insights uh, on that as well and how that kind of works in the power dynamics of being somewhere else, so to speak. <laughs> yeah, that's so true. And then it's also uh, thinking about, well, if you don't know, um, in the context of if you're in Trinidad and Guyana, you don't, and you don't know another language that isn't colonial, then it's, yeah. what do you do? And there's a sense of loss there and you never get over that sense of loss. No, and it, I think that that is also why I find it so, you know, so I understand what's happening in this new <laughs> new context that we are all living in and then transferring it to our children. But then also it's so hard to transfer it by yourself, right? Like I feel like if my parents would be alive, then I would have a more urgency to feel more urgency to transfer the language so they could actually communicate with my parents. But mm -hmm. since they're not there anymore, so the connection with the ancestors in that sense, in my parents' sense, is gone. And also preserving or transferring is quite hard. Yes. Such it takes so much labor. And learning language yeah. is not easy. And um, but I, I know I'm like the nerd that like sticks out and doesn't fall into that category. But like trying to teach or maintain that as a community is 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 there's so much energy that goes into it, and especially when you're in diaspora in host countries, whether that be you know, part of empire like you in the Netherlands, or in the case of Grima and me in, in settler colonial states like Canada and the United States. And like, there's there's no one else around to help maintain that. How do you do that as an individual? And Suriname is, is really a unique place in the way language was retained. And I tried to or I, I did spend a number of years trying to learn Hindi and Urdu myself and then in in doing that for mm -hmm. me it just found my Caribbeanness or my, my Guyanese identity is so distant from those people who or those today who speak Hindi and Urdu in at least in, in relation to me as a Guyanese person. Mm -hmm. Oh here comes the lawnmower. Oh, geez. <laughs> you can't hear it loudly. <laughs> Not now. Oh, anyway, but um, but yes, so it, it was a language that I, in, in trying to like seek connection or like we, we all sort of share this like loss. There's like something missing that we feel. Mm -hmm. and, and what is that? And, and I didn't have grandparents growing up from my Guyanese family um, and they, they wouldn't have spoken any South Asian languages whether it would have been Bhojpuri or Tamil or, um, or, or Awadi or Urdu but even so there's this, this question of where and how and what that, that was lost through, through the violence mm -hmm. of, mm -hmm. the of colonialism. Yeah. And as you said before, we're, we're speaking the language of the colonizer, and yeah. sort of, I just I sort of feel weird in this way of like uh, this. It's wonderful we can all communicate and and facilitate a conversation in English with people on two different continents representing a number of different uh, former indenture sites. But at the same time, it's it's the language of the colonizer, and there's this expectation still today that the importance of speaking English. But where does that come from? Yeah, and also speaking it very properly, right? Um, Who's English are we speaking? Right, even even more than than maybe uh, uh, English English speakers, natives, whatever you want to call them. 
um, like in the Netherlands when you speak Dutch with an accent, that's actually not done if you're from the colonies, right? You're you're immediately placed in a power structure that you are less, which I find very difficult. Mm-hmm. Right, and so, and I think that the power structure that that bothers me the most, because then also within our own community we speak less and less uh, Sanami, and then sometimes you forget you you know you become forgetful of words. Like the other day, I was I was looking through my cupboards and I was thinking, oh, I need. I need, and then I couldn't find either the Dutch word, the English word, or <laughs> or the tsunami word for for um, garlic, which is listum. And it was so weird for me that that then because of the structure in my brain, uh, obviously that all of these languages kind of collide, and then I don't know anything anymore. So how can I transfer anything to my children? Uh, you know, and also of course we're also trying to transfer some of the Japanese background, Indonesian background, and then also the West African background. And, and sometimes I feel like we are confusing our children in a good way, but but still we are confusing because we are confused ourselves. So it's interesting. You said that so well. We we are confused ourselves. We're, <laughs> yeah. Yes. Negotiate this, and and how do we, how do we reconcile this? And I, I think it's a process that maybe ne- never ends in some ways. It's something that it continues to evolve and evolve the more we question and interrogate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and it's so important how um, power structures with language was brought up, because um, it's not only structures within colonial languages, but mm-hmm. even when we look at how we even look at the retention of South Asian languages, the way that we pronounce words in Urdu or Hindi, Bojpuri, Awadi or Tamil, how we pronounce these words as the descendants of indentured laborers, we face that power structure where we're considered less than because of the way that we pronounce our language. We also have to look at how the this uh, language policing occurs who has more power privilege in different spaces because like even within the trinidadian Guyanese context as someone who's half trini half Guyanese, i can never pronounce it trini or Guyanese enough and oh, yeah. when language is being um, policed and um also thinking about well, what gets retained or preserved and how does it shape what's represented or how the language is understood or what interpretations are occurring because um, even when we look at it in the Indo-Caribbean context and in, in indentured labor displacement, uh, colonial displacement to the Caribbean, what words are preserved? Which words aren't preserved? Um, looking at the politics behind these decisions, who gets represented, who does not? Who's marginalized, who's oppressed? How is that oppression occurring? And it's contextual and it changes. It's very fluid. So these are just important questions to keep in mind when we're even thinking about language. Um, yeah. Preservation. Yeah. Also the hierarchy, right? I mean, mm-hmm. like Hindi, mm-hmm. Hindi is better than Bhojpuri, right? Because Bhojpuri is from like lower caste, mm-hmm. uh, and 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 we didn't bring the caste system, but we did bring colorism, right? So with mm-hmm. us uh, <laughs> to to uh, to the remixing of caste. <laughs> yes, exactly. So now it becomes so different when we're having conversations. And then I think, for instance, when we are singing birthday songs, sometimes we still um, we still sing. Um, Same here, Barbara Daniel. Yeah, ex- exactly. Yes, yes. <laughs> exactly right. So we sing that, but that is Hindi, and I would say we would do it like in the Bhojpuri way. We would say mm-hmm. we would say uh, 
we would say tera aaj din janam din tujhko mubarak ho right and uh, and then sometimes we use the bollywood version Uh, right and then and then you go like mm, yeah. are we singing the bollywood version or are we doing the bhojpuri thing and then everyone starts and this is why i'm saying we are collectively confused mm-hmm. <laughs> because we put in english and then dutch and then you know okay we're doing everything okay great <laughs> and then that's because the ritual of five languages bringing together this one song and the person waiting for blowing out candles oh my god <laughs> <laughs> you know so much languages you're always switching yes. languages in your mind and sometimes i find myself starting to speak french but i'm st- all of a sudden saying something in urdu then i'm saying something in chinese and it goes back to like what's stereotypically understood as like canadian english accent so it's just there's so much languages going on in my mind <laughs> Yeah, I know. So it's so com- that's what I'm saying. We're collectively confused where all of these languages <laughs> and then there's the outsiders who don't know what to make of us. Exactly. <laughs> Definitely. Even in Canada, I was in Canada with my brother and my sister. My sister lives in New York. Yeah. Uh, and we were visiting just and we they said, "Oh, let's go to Toronto." So we went to Toronto and that was fun. But we were speaking like Sanami Hindi and then like a couple of people they couldn't make up what what we were actually and they were like are you Indian or are you what what are you and I was like yeah, what are we <laughs> you know, because, because what are we in your context because you're trying to kind of mirror us to your image and trying to contextualize where we are coming from but we you know that would be explaining the whole of the history to people that don't even know of our existence mm-hmm. right that's so true I always find myself having to spend two minutes and over whenever I'm asked where are you from. I just I give the whole story. I'm like whatever you take from it, you take from it. But I feel the need to give the whole story. Yes, exactly. If you really want to know, <laughs> I feel like I'm leaving a part of me outside if I don't say it all. Exactly. Yes. So uh, I always say, do you have a minute? Do you really want to know, or is, is being is being Dutch? sufficient enough for now i don't know <laughs> interesting when they get the answer but i really i, I love this i love that we're having this conversation and oh i'm so grateful for you all being part of this and, and coming together and this I, i'm sorry we, we lost several people throughout this mm-hmm. time no no i feel i feel them because now I, my husband is calling if i'm gonna make dinner of it or if he should start it <laughs> No, I, I can't believe. Oh my gosh, it's almost two hours. We've been at this. If you can believe it, but you know, it just you, flew by. Yeah. by. Exactly, time flies by when you're having fun. But this really was such a pleasure. It was so magical, and it, I just felt like so much power just listening to everyone's words and and what you all had to share, and and it, it, it felt very healing as well to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think uh, the relatableness of it kind of occurred to me that. I was like, oh my God, we're all over the world, and it's so relatable, you know, being from this endangered kind of colonial background, mm-hmm. which we don't discuss enough in daily life, of course, because there's no space for that. So thank you very much, Alex. Thank you. Excellent, bedankt. Thank you so much, Prima. Thank you so much for creating um, this space for us and curating it, and. allowing us to have these difficult conversations that just we were able to learn from each other share with each other you with each other it was just thank you so much for doing that it, it's what i needed <laughs> essentially pleasure but we can thank you for, for sharing the space thank mm-hmm. you thank you Yay.
Thank you. Have a great, oh, great day, I think. Thank you. Thank you very much. Have a good one.